So let us hear the word of our God. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> As we begin here today, I um, want to start with just a couple everyday examples. When we endeavor to learn something, uh, it is often the case that we not only learn the right way or the right idea, but we often then compare that with what is wrong, because that then helps us to understand the right way better. So, you know, if it's an everyday kind of thing like playing sports, shooting a basketball, pitching a baseball, or something like that, uh, not only do you talk about your mechanics in the right way, but often you analyze it and show, well, this is the wrong way. If you hold your arm in this position or your hand in this position or you press with this finger or whatever, it, it's not going to go the way you want. And so you and analyze it in, in the accurate sense as well as the inaccurate sense so that you can do it better, learn it in a better way. Uh, the same is true in all kinds of things. You know, Matt, what you do at, at work, if you're off, what, uh, 64th or 128th, you throw it away, right? <laughs> or whatever the exact numbers are. So, you know, you've got to learn to do things accurately. And certainly that applies then to what we believe and what we understand uh, in general, but especially here in the scriptures. And when we do this, the, the goal here is not to be critical in a mean kind of judgmental way, but to help us to think more carefully and to understand better what is the right way of thinking and understanding. Paul's doing that here for us. He has given us the wrong idea in verse 21, and now he's going to give us the contrast, the right idea here in verse 22. So, last time, we spent our time focusing on the righteousness of God, and that it was revealed through the work of Christ. And so the birth of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and glorification, the sending of the Spirit, all of these things have demonstrated to us the righteousness of God, his character, as well as his wrath and judgment against sinners, and his gift of righteousness to sinners. This righteousness, of course, was witnessed in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, especially in the sacrificial system, as well as God's daily interactions with his people. But now, he says, it is to be clearly understood uh, that now the Christ has come. What was in the Old Covenant was shadowy. They were types and shadows, as we call it, uh, anticipating Christ's work. But now that he has come, we more clearly see and understand, as well as the fact that he's accomplished now the work of salvation. Now, last time, I just touched on the phrase, apart from law. And that is because now Paul is presenting to us the contrast. So verse 21, the righteousness of God apart from the law. Now verse 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Note the contrast. Very intentional on Paul's part. Uh, apart from the law, that's the wrong way. Here now is the right way through faith in Christ. This is how we understand and have demonstrated to us the righteousness of God. And so his, his character is revealed in this. His wrath against sin, his gift of righteousness are all shown to us not by law-keeping, but by faith in Jesus. Our law-keeping can only result in judgment. And as I was reflecting on uh, something I said last week, I realized I misspoke a little bit. I apologize for that. And what I'm intending to say is this, our law-keeping can only result in judgment, receiving God's wrath, his righteousness in that way, because our obedience is never perfect. But our faith in Jesus, on the other hand, results in blessing because we trust that Jesus has taken the judgment we deserve for our sin and he has perfectly obeyed God's law in our place. And so this is demonstrated for us through faith, not through law keeping. So Paul's point is pretty straightforward. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's not what we do, verse 21. It's what Jesus did, verse 22. It's not our righteousness, but his. Not anything in us, but everything in him. Now, this is what makes the gospel offensive. Sometimes you'll hear people say this, that the gospel is offensive. Why is it offensive? Well, it's very simple. We don't do anything in our justification. And that goes against everything in us as a sinful human being. We want to contribute something, even if it's just a very little bit. We want to contribute something. Okay? Especially for those who are more servant-like, who like to help out and so forth. You know, we, we just want to do something, right? But this is why it's offensive. We can't contribute anything positively in our justification okay and i can make this general statement all religions including those in churches they do not uphold accurately what paul is saying every one of them add works in some way or another you know you can make a general statement and it can be generally true maybe 51 percent of the time <laughs> You can make a general statement that is true 90% of the time. And there are a few exceptions. And on occasion, you can make a general statement that is always true. And I just did that. Unless we have the, the true biblical understanding of faith and justification, then every other position, even in churches, holds to works in some way or another. Because, again, our tendency, our desire is to contribute something. And so whether you're talking about the Muslim, whether you're talking about the Buddhist, whether you're talking about the atheist, okay, whatever it is, whatever next life or better life or, you know, legacy you leave behind when you go into the ground, you know, we contribute to that in some way. The moralist, of course, gets upset because he or she wants to add something to their goodness, to be a good person. They want to be considered good by others. 
even if it's just a little that we can add. But Paul has been telling us from 118 to 320, you, you can't add anything. Everything we do is unrighteous. Even the best things we do are imperfect. The Jew of Paul's day, and even the Christian of our day, gets upset by this because we think our religious activities, even coming here this morning to church, our religious heritage even, our religious blessings, they must count for something, right? Doesn't this add to our standing before God? And Paul's been telling us, no, not at all. Whether it's circumcision or baptism, church attendance, Bible study, exuberant singing, humble confession, you name it, none of them can meet God's standards of righteousness. And so we know the righteousness of God, but not by anything we do. It is only through faith in Christ. When we look to Jesus, who has accomplished righteousness for us, then we can know God's righteousness. When we look to Jesus, who has taken the righteous wrath of God, now we can know the righteousness of God in these, if you will, more positive ways. Okay. And so note the contrast that he has given to us, and note how it's inherently offensive. Okay. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, if you make it so easy, this easy believism kind of thing, then uh, it, it really doesn't matter very much. It, it's, it's actually hard to accept that we are justified by faith alone because it goes against everything in us. Our sinful man wants to do something. All right, let's turn then to Romans chapter 9. And... Uh, uh, flesh out a little bit of what we read here a moment ago. Hey, without rereading everything and pointing out everything, let me highlight a few things. Notice, especially in verse 30 how, of chapter 9, where Paul says, The Gentiles have attained to righteousness. How? Through faith. The righteousness of faith. But Israel, on the other hand, has not attained to righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but they tried to do it themselves. They stumbled over Christ. They were unwilling to give up the idea that we contribute something. They were offended. They stumbled. So in chapter 10, verses 1 and following, right, he, he, he greatly desires for Israel's salvation. Verse 2, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to truth. And he knows that because he was one of them. One of the best of them. And so right, they, they often would try to do these great things, great things for the Lord. Right? They went to church every time the doors open kind of thing. Uh, and yet it's based on ignorance, he says. So now verse 3. But they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what he is saying here is the exact same thing he's saying in Romans 3, verses 21 and 22. It's apart from law that we know righteousness. It is only by believing in Jesus that we know and can have God's righteousness unto salvation. And then in verse 5, note he says, uh, if you're going to try to earn righteousness 
by law keeping, then you have to be perfect, right? The man who does these things shall live by them. You have to perfectly keep the law. You can't just add a little bit. It's all or nothing. We can't contribute a little bit of righteousness. It has to be 100%. But of course, we can't do that. And so then if you jump down, especially uh, to verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. So again, Paul is saying the same thing here as he's telling us in our section today. And so whether we are striving to be godly on our own, like Paul is saying here with the Israelites, whether we're talking about a Christian in name or a moralist, or we're talking about people in our culture, you know, the basic premise is as long as you do more good than evil, then you're going to go to some better place. Or if you avoid some particular evil, then you'll get to go to whatever nirvana or something like that. Uh, some people will talk about descent. Some will talk about the legacy you leave behind when you die or, you know, whatever. But in every one of these, they're striving to gain some kind of righteousness, some kind of blessing based on what they do. But again, Paul is saying, no, that's not how it works. Let's turn a moment to, uh, excuse me, to Matthew chapter 5. You might remember a couple weeks ago we looked at uh, verses 17 and 18. We were talking about some of the, the temporal ideas of Christ's coming, the continuity, the discontinuity, the things that change, the things that remain the same. And we looked at those two verses. Let's now look at verse 20 and know what Paul says, or excuse me, Jesus says here. Matthew 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we tend to read that and think, uh, well, that didn't seem very hard. <laughs> but what Jesus is meaning here is the godliest people that you know. And in that day, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees often in particular, were considered the godliest people in Israel. They were the ones who were the seminary professors, the pastors, the missionaries, the ones that you would look to, who, who were godly and, and in every way, right? And so Jesus is saying then, you need to be more righteous than they are. Well, how do you do that? It's not by law keeping. It's by looking to Jesus, who has been righteous in every way. So here first is the contrast, this contrast that Paul is setting up for us. This is the wrong way. Law-keeping is not how you attain to the righteousness of God. Faith in Jesus is how we attain to it. So let's now talk a little bit about faith. Paul here is beginning a rather extended discussion of faith. It will take us through chapter 4. But notice the first thing he tells us here is that it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. In other words, Jesus is the object of our faith. Okay. Now, let's again now here give some contrast to help us to better understand what this means. Paul is not talking about the sincerity of our faith. He is not saying if you believe hard enough, Paul is not saying have faith in faith. 
He's saying having faith, have faith in Jesus. The object of our faith is not ourselves. We're not talking about our own zeal. We're not talking about how much faith we can conjure up. We're talking about putting faith in somebody else. And so it is not faith in faith. It is not faith in me in the end. It is faith in Jesus. Now, this may seem like an obvious statement, but this, you hear faith in faith almost everywhere we go. Okay. I was watching something here the other day, and a Disney commercial came on. Okay. And if you just believe, then all your wishes will come true. Okay. Remember some of the old uh, TV shows, uh, you know, the uh, Highway to Heaven, or Little House on the Prairie, or Walker, Texas Ranger, or ones you may see on Hallmark channels today, or something like that. They, they constantly talk about having faith. But if you listen carefully, they're talking about the sincerity of our faith. They're not talking about the object of our faith. They very deliberately many times don't speak of the object of our faith. Maybe they'll talk about God, but not Jesus, not very often at all. Okay. But unfortunately, many churches will do the same kind of thing. Although they'll say the right words. Let's use... Joel Osteen's church here is an example because it's been in the news this week because of the attack there uh, last weekend. And his church and the 45,000 or whatever it is that attend, what they constantly hear week after week is that if you have sincere faith, genuine faith, if your faith is strong enough, then God will bless you. You will have lots of money. You won't have any health problems. I wonder how they're dealing with this attack in light of this theology. But this is what we hear in churches. In fact, most Christians today are what we would call Arminians in their theology. I've, it's been a while since I've heard this number, so the numbers might be a little different now. But when I did hear it, it the, the idea was about 10% of Christians in America are Reformed. In other words, who would have this understanding that Paul is giving to us. 90% approximately have the Arminian viewpoint. And that is basically salvation is up to my choice. When I believe, then I am born again. That's how you frequently hear it. If you just come down the aisle and sing just as I am, then God's going to change your heart and make you one of his children. But that's the exact opposite of what Paul is saying to us here. It's not up for me to decide for Jesus. That's putting faith in myself. That's actually saying I have the ability to choose, but I don't. I am dead in my sins. There is no one who seeks after God. Okay. So what about the Catholic approach to these things? Well, they teach in their basic uh, foundational doctrines that Christ's work accomplished some of the work of righteousness. And it's our job to finish it. 
Now, they'll talk about faith in Jesus. They'll talk about grace. But their teaching is Christ did so much and I have to do the rest. So you remember the scale of righteousness I've used. Maybe Jesus accomplished 90%. It's up to me to do the rest. And how do you do the rest? Well, you keep the sacraments. And they, they have seven of them. So there are a variety of ways you can add to this righteousness so you can get up to 100. And if you don't get to it in this life, you can get more of it in purgatory before you get to heaven. But the premise is, it's not apart from law, but it's according to law that we know the righteousness of God. Jesus has done a whole bunch for us, but there's some for us to finish. And so we're trusting in ourselves. We're not finding righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith in Jesus and faith in me. Okay, So... <clears throat> This is why you go to confession regularly, you say a bunch of Hail Marys, you rub your rosaries, you are prideful about your Catholic heritage. These kinds of things are important to them because of this mindset. Okay. Now, um, if you were to go to the Catholic Church in Grove City, you'll find an interesting paradox. Because the Catholic Church in Grove City combines this Catholic teaching with some Protestant teaching and even some Reformed teaching. And so they are actually a bit closer to uh, trusting in Jesus' ideas that we would teach. But fundamentally, there's still this undergirding idea that we must add something to what Jesus has done. And so for the Catholic, we are saved through Jesus, faith in Jesus, and the things that I do for the Arminian, we are saved by my decision for Jesus. These are the contrasting things. But Paul is saying, no. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. Nothing else. Now again, this isn't to be critical. This isn't to be mean. This is just to help us to see what is true. This is not to say that people in those churches cannot be saved. Okay. It isn't to say that as long as you have the right understanding, you are saved either. Okay. But at the same time, as we're trying to understand what Paul is saying, note, if you will, the wrong way to throw the baseball here, as well as the right way, so that we can better understand the truth. It is also the case, and I, I've encountered this, I talk to Arminians, and they say, oh, we don't believe that. I'm like, what? Well, actually, you do. Now, here, look, see how the, your logic leads you to this conclusion. And uh, you've heard other, you know, Catholics say the same kind of thing. Many times, I, in my experience, they don't really understand what their denomination teaches. And certainly not the implications. That is not true of everyone. That is just a general statement. But it is often the case. But let me add another aspect in this way. Okay? Sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, if you do this, then you're a true believer. So in Baptist circles, sometimes, not all of them, but sometimes you will hear them say, if you're immersed, then you're truly saved. If you're not immersed, then you're not really saved. But if you are immersed, then you're, you're going to go to heaven. And they'll not just be talking about, let's do immersion as the mode, 
but they're actually using it as a means of our justification. Not all of them say that, but some of them will. I've heard it. Um, or you go into a charismatic or Pentecostal kind of church and the, hear some of the same things about speaking in tongues. If you speak in tongues, this is an indication you're a spiritual Christian. If you don't, you're a carnal Christian, and no carnal Christian is going to get to heaven or something to that effect. Now, not all of them speak that way, but you will hear some of them say those things. Okay. In our circles, you will hear sometimes people say, if you have the right understanding of this doctrine, then you're a true believer and you're going to go to heaven. And if you don't have the right understanding, then you can't go to heaven. Some will say there'll be no Catholics in heaven because they're wrong. Now we're adding works in that way, aren't we? Our understanding now is contributing to the work of Christ. Or one last example, in a modern woke church, you will hear them say, if you don't repent of your white privilege, you cannot be a true Christian. But you see how all these things are adding to Christ. It's not faith alone in Christ alone. But Paul is very clear here in what he is communicating to us. We are only saved when we trust completely in Jesus. Okay? And again, we're not going to do it unless God works in us. And so this is why we looked at Ephesians. Let's turn there a moment here again. In Ephesians 2, we uh, have been looking at this passage here recently. Remember verses 1 to 3 summarize what Paul has been saying about our sin. And last time we looked at it, we saw verse 4. Right? In Romans, he says, but now. In Ephesians, he says, but God. But now notice in this context what he goes on to say. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now notice what that teaches us. If we are going to say, I believe in Jesus and then I am born again, that's the exact opposite of what Paul says here. But again, this is the language we'll hear in Arminian churches. What Paul says here is, when God causes me to be born again, then I make a decision for Jesus. Because in and of myself, I'm not going to make a decision for Jesus except for rejection. Because no one seeks God, as he says in Romans 3. And so note, the, what Paul is teaching here is the exact opposite of what we so often hear in churches today. And so when God changes our heart, when he makes us alive through his gracious choice through Jesus Christ, as he says here in verse 5, he did it when we were dead. And so it is completely by grace. It's not even my choice that has anything to do with my justification. So in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And you will hear this frequently in the Arminian churches. They'll, they'll recite this verse over and over and over again. And yet, 
If you believe that you have the freedom to choose, and once you choose, God will change your heart, that is no longer grace. That is a work. We are dead. He makes our hearts alive. That's why we believe. That's why we seek God. And so faith is a gift. Note how Paul words this here. He says, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Now, Paul actually is referring to the whole process of of salvation there, not just faith, but it includes faith. Faith is not something of ourselves. It is a gift. And it is a gift because God changed our hearts so that we can repent and believe. So I do not conjure it up myself. And so to return to where I started in this section, back here in Romans 3, Paul says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The object of our faith is not ourselves. It is Christ. It's not my choice, not anything I do. It is Christ. So, here are uh, a few thoughts in this context. Let me add one more thought in this way before we look at the next point, and that is, even if we have the right understanding, that doesn't mean that we are superior to others. Even this can be considered a work if we're not careful. God graciously has changed our hearts, which enables us to believe and understand, and this should lead us to humility and to praise. If we believe that my salvation is based on my choice, that leads to pride. I chose Jesus and you didn't. But even if we have the right understanding that I don't choose Jesus, God chooses me and enables me to respond, well, that then should lead to humility. And so Reformed people can be as prideful as those who think they have made a choice. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. All right. Um, Let me put it in a different way. Paul never says that we are saved because of our faith. He never words it that way. He always words it that we are saved by faith or through faith. And that is very intentional on his part because we are saved because of Christ, because of what he did. And all we are doing is looking to him and receiving that, trusting in him. His atoning death, his righteous obedience. We look to him by faith. The language that theologians have used over the centuries is faith is a means. It is an instrument. But it's not the ground of our justification. The work of Christ is that foundation. We're just simply resting in him, looking to him. And we do it because God's changed our hearts. It is something we do. It is only after God has worked in us. All right, now, the last main thing I want us to cover here this morning is what is faith? 
And the first thing I want to mention is, is simply this. Um, Paul uses the term faith or belief 25 times, beginning here in this verse and taking us through chapter 4. Prior to this, he doesn't mention it, except back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. <laughs> okay? But now it becomes his focal point. Okay? <clears throat> we see it here three times in this section, plus the verb to believe. And then we'll see it more at the end of the chapter and, of course, in chapter 4. So obviously this is his emphasis now. Not law, but faith. Faith in Christ, not in ourselves. So what is faith then? How do we define it? This may be a bit more complicated than you might expect. And there have been a lot of things said over the centuries to try to define faith. I believe the best way of understanding what faith is, is by talking about cats. And we're not talking about fuzzy little felines that purr on our lap or something. We're talking about cats here, K-A-T. And you might remember, I made mention of this all the way back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But let me say it again here now in this context. If we are going to have faith, we need to have knowledge the correct knowledge about Jesus, about the scriptures, and so forth. Okay? Back in chapter 1, right, Paul introduced this to this in verse 3. Right? We must believe that Jesus is God's son, that he is our Lord, that he was born of David, he has been raised from the dead. We're going to see here in this section, verses 24 to 26, we must believe that his work justifies redeems, propitiates God. As we saw in chapter 10 here a moment ago, okay, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Do you see the point? We have to have certain knowledge about who Jesus is and what he has done. We must believe that he is God. We must believe that he obeyed perfectly for me. We must believe that he died on the cross for my sins. We must believe that he rose from the dead because of his own perfection. We must believe he's in heaven, he's going to return again, okay, among some other things. We must believe that I cannot save myself, that my only hope is in Jesus. We must believe that my best actions are still unrighteous. We must believe the Bible is God's word. There's a variety of things that we have to know from the scriptures. Now, some of you may have heard that there's a, a new movie that has come out recently about Bob Marley. And uh, if you know about him, he was the reggae singer from the 60s and 70s in particular. And he spoke a lot about Jesus. <clears throat> he claimed to be a follower of Jesus. He sang about it. He wrote about it. He spoke about it. They talked about praising God, worshiping God, on and on and on. <coughs> But they had a different knowledge of Jesus. He believed that Jesus returned in one of the kings in Africa. And that they were worshiping Jesus, who actually had returned. And they talked about the Rastafari. They had knowledge, but it was the wrong knowledge. How can they have faith in Jesus if you believe wrong things about Jesus? Knowledge is important, 
And that's why we start with K. But knowledge is not enough. Even if you have the right knowledge, you have to accept it or assent to it. So that's your A. We must assent to the facts, accept them, believe that they are true. There are many people that know the facts, but they don't believe it. Especially those who've grown up in the church and left the church. They know the facts, but they just don't believe it. It's not enough to be successful in a Bible trivia game or Jeopardy or something like that. You must accept what these facts are saying. Now, some people don't want to make a distinction there. They think knowledge and assent go together, and so there's some debate in that way. I think it's helpful at the least to say that we can make a distinction here. And so you need to know the truth, but then you need to accept that truth. But that's not enough either to have faith in Jesus. Because James tells us in chapter 2, verse 19, that the demons believe, but they shudder and tremble. Hey, remember when uh, Jesus cast out the, the legion and they went into the pigs and went down into the water and all that. Right? When Jesus came there and this man came running out, right, he knew exactly who Jesus was. He accepted the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and had authority over him. He had knowledge. He had assent. But there certainly was no salvation for this man until Jesus cast out the demons and then changed his heart and so forth, right? And so knowledge and assent are not sufficient to have saving faith. We also need T, and that is trust. We must trust in Jesus. Now, let me just give you a couple analogies here uh, briefly. In our everyday lives, we use K, A, and T. So when you sat down on this pew here today, you had faith in it. You had knowledge that it would hold you up, and you believed it would hold you up, and then you exercised trust by actually sitting down. Now, for those of us who have sat in these pews for, for many, many years, we don't even think about it anymore. But for someone who maybe comes from a church that don't use pews, they only use chairs or something, they might do a little inspection, you know, is this going to work, you know, or whatever, and then they sit down. The same can be said for medicine. We have to have a certain knowledge that this medicine is going to be beneficial for me, and we need to assent that it's actually true that this is going to help me, but until we take it, we don't have faith. Now, maybe we have faith in our doctor and just do whatever the doctor says, but that's still a form of faith, isn't it, with knowledge, assent, and trust. Well, when it comes here to our salvation, obviously we're talking about these things here, about Jesus. We must know the facts. We must assent to them. But there is no salvation until we turn away from our law-keeping, until we turn away from the idea that it's up to me to make a decision, until we turn away from those things and look to Jesus alone and trust him for salvation, then we don't actually have faith. When we say, I am saved from God's wrath and judgment because of what Jesus has done, that's saving faith. 
if we've actually put our trust in him. Okay. You know, when Martin Luther translated this passage from Greek into German, he added the word alone here. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, many people over the years since have said, well, yeah, he's adding to the text here and so on. He shouldn't have done that. Okay, for, but it is getting at the idea, isn't it? It's not law keeping. It's not my choice. It's faith alone. Not anything that I contribute, but faith alone in Jesus. That is how we have saving faith. You could even say it this way. Even the righteousness of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Because if we don't believe in Jesus only, then we're actually believing in ourselves in some way. Again, maybe my choice, maybe my church attendance or whatever it is. But let me also then mention this. Our faith is never perfect. We never have enough true knowledge. We never have enough assent because we still have doubts. Our trust, our faith is always weak. It is always incomplete. It is never perfect. Remember the father who said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Okay? We have lots of unbelief in us still. But that's where our hope lies. Because it's not based on how sincere my faith is. It's based on what Jesus has done for me and that God has changed me so that I can even have an imperfect faith. Again, it's not based on anything that I have done. It is all in God's good pleasure in the end. And so I ask you then this question. Have you believed in Jesus? Not just do you have knowledge about Jesus, not just do you believe, yeah, well, okay, I believe he actually died and rose again, but are you trusting in him, in him alone? Or are you still clinging to something in your life that somehow contributes to what Jesus has done? Are you still thinking, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was eight years old, and that's why I'm going to heaven. Are you still thinking, well, when Billy Graham came to Pittsburgh 30-whatever years ago, and I walked down to Just As I Am, and I got to meet Gary Anderson when he was speaking, and you know, that's why I'm saved. <clears throat> no. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is Jesus, and Jesus only. Have you trusted in Jesus? Or are you still trusting in yourself in some way? Let me reiterate here in closing. <clears throat> My goal here is not to be critical. My goal here is not to put people down or whatever. But as we contrast wrong views with right views, hopefully we come to a better understanding of what Paul is teaching us here. And it should lead us in God's good pleasure to saving faith. 
All right. Well, we'll pick up with his next point, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you again for your word, and we thank you especially for teaching us these things, because we would never think this way as sinful human beings. We are thankful, Lord, that you have used Paul and certainly other passages in the scripture to make it abundantly clear to us that there is nothing in us that would ever please you. That you have made it clear to us that we would never come to you and seek you and choose you left to ourselves. Because again, we, we think we can. And so we are thankful, Lord, for this word to help us to see what is true, to see that we are enemies. We would never come to you, never want to come to you, but we are thankful, Lord, in your grace and your good pleasure that you, even when we were dead, made us alive, that all of this is a gift. And so, Lord, we do pray that in your good pleasure, everyone here has this saving faith. That you have worked in the heart of everyone. And if there is yet someone who has not yet trusted, we do pray, Lord, that you would work. That we would not manipulate through some altar call or mood music. But that you, by your spirit, would soften the hearts to receive Christ, to look to him and him alone, through faith alone. We pray for your mercies. We pray for your good blessings here in this way. For those of us who have received this saving faith by your grace, we thank you, Lord. We give you the praise. Lord, help us never to claim any of that glory for ourselves, but to give you thanks, to be humble, and then, of course, to live by faith, day to day, looking to you. Faith that will move mountains, not because of our zeal, but because we look to you. And so, Lord, we, again, are so uh, grateful for your uh, word here in this way for your grace to us in Christ. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.